Welcome to Revenue Harvest, a podcast about the fundamentals of sales leadership. Did you know most sales teams don't hit their sales targets and you can't afford to miss yours? This podcast will give you the answer to questions that will help you lead your team better, consistently exceed your sales targets, and make the most of your career. I'm your host, Nigel Green, and the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who can make you a better sales leader. Let's get started. Welcome back or welcome to Revenue Harvest. In this episode, I am joined by Justin Welsh. I was first introduced to Justin on LinkedIn. No surprise, he has over 100,000 LinkedIn followers and by all accounts is the authority for sales and marketing professionals on building and leveraging your audience to income and reputation on LinkedIn. A little bit about Justin is that uh, before quitting his high-paid executive job in 2019 to go work for himself, he built two 50 million plus annual recurring revenue sales teams and raised over 300 million in venture capital. In this conversation with Justin, you're going to hear from someone that's just real, who's done the work and who is optimizing his life around discretionary time. And that may not be you in this season of life. Uh, Maybe you're still trying to build that first sales team or you're looking to stay in the game, uh, building your second or third sales team. What you're going to hear from Justin are practical reasons as to why you can no longer afford not to spend time building out a reputation and an audience in LinkedIn. He'll argue, and and I'll agree with him, that building your LinkedIn audience and building a reputation around the work that you do may actually be more valuable to your business, to the business of you, to your career than any exit. It's something that's going to carry with you throughout your career. You're going to love this conversation with Justin, and uh, let's get right to it. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you, man? I'm doing great, Nigel. Thanks uh, so much for having me, man. I'm glad we uh, we were able to make this happen. Yeah, it's good to have you as a fellow Nashvilleian. So welcome to Nashville. I know it's about a year old now, but uh, now that we're getting back to normal, an official welcome to Nashville. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I what I appreciate about your work, uh, and and we're for those that don't know Justin officially, we're contemporaries to some degree, and that we both have deep experience building and leading healthcare sales teams. Justin led the sales team for Patient Pop, uh, which is a beautiful piece of technology. But now he's, he's really, I don't want to say reinvented himself, but he has added an additional layer of nuance and that he really is the authority on building your own personal brand. And I wanted to have a conversation with Justin today for this group of listeners, because what, what I'm seeing from time to time is there are a lot of sales leaders, marketing leaders that are overshadowed by a bigger personal brand that rightfully is being held by the CEO or the CEO or someone else on the management team that has a strong personal brand that does support corporate brand. The reason that's important is there are a lot of data that shows that consumers, even B2B buyers, are more likely to do business with a company when that executive team the executives that exist on the executive team have a personal brand. It, it, it's just a great selling point. But a lot of sales leaders are either muzzled or unintentionally muzzled themselves 
the company sells, they may get the payday, or even worse, they don't, but they don't even get to put the feather in their cap or the arrow in their quiver because they didn't do the work of talking about documenting their contribution to the success. And I'll just stop there, and I want you to speak to that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, there's a lot of benefits for obviously the leader. So if you're able to go out and build a personal brand like I did, I was able to tie my the success of Patient Pop going from you know no revenue to fifty million in four and a half years. I was able to take some sort of credit for that on online, right? I, I built the sales organization, I ran that team, and so I wanted to make sure that that a when I got done doing that that people were aware of the fact that I had a meaningful impact because the, the, the tenure of sales executives of the executive leadership person who runs the sales team, 16 months. And so generally in my role, at some point you find yourself out of a job, right? At some point happens to all of us. And so I think it's really important to build that brand. But on the flip side, I think what a lot of companies get wrong is how you can leverage that that brand internally while it's being built. So not only was I benefiting from building my brand, but Patient Pop was benefiting. I, I was the the VP of sales, the SVP of sales. Kevin Dorsey, who worked for me as the VP of inside sales, we both had meaningful brands on LinkedIn, still do to this day, and that made recruiting easier. It made going out and finding really top sales talent much easier. We got so many inbound leads from account executives and SDRs that said, I want to work with Justin. I want to work with KD. I follow them on, on LinkedIn. Like that's a win-win. And so uh, as we move into sort of this next generation, this creator economy where everyone owns their own personal brand, companies that leverage that are getting ahead. I mean, look at Gong, look at Outreach, look at the companies doing it really well. They're attracting top talent. They get a lot of attention in the marketplace. They're generating a ton of leads. And their employees, when they leave, have a, a leg to stand on. So I think it's it's a win all around for me. So then a couple of things come to mind. Uh, there, there's some leaders listening to this that feel uh, maybe bashful or as if it would be arrogant to say, I built a sales team that did $50 million in annual revenue. Or to say, like, well, I did it when we know that there were you know a lot of sales reps, a very successful product team. How do you balance between like taking credit when, when it really is due versus, Hey, look at me. Sure. I think it's, it's less about look at me. And so if you, if you go back when my content was originally around patient pop and selling, um, very rarely, if ever, did I come out and say, I did this thing. Um, the way that I introduced the, the growth of the company was through learnings. So like, Hey, here are three things I learned between zero and 10 million in recurring revenue. Here are five mistakes I made when we got to 30 million in recurring revenue. So often it was like, these are mistakes that I made. So I was going out on behalf of my audience, folks that wanted to build big sales teams, uncovering the mistakes that hopefully, you know, they could avoid and delivering that as the, as the conduit, you know, as the, as the information, um, you know, deliverer to the, the audience. And so I think people really built a lot of trust or, or ga I gained some trust that way by not just saying, look at me, but instead by saying, here's some lessons, here's some failures, here's a few wins. Here's some folks on my team that I'm, I'm really you know proud of and I'm really appreciative uh, of. And so that was the way that I delivered the content. I think if you go out and say, look at me, look at me, look at me, you're going to get turned off. Like people are going to turn you off. They're going to tune out. And so it's a balance of, 
you know, promoting yourself, but also effectively educating others so that they gain some trust. If that makes sense. Yeah. And you, you spoke to earlier that the reality that we're looking at a less than two year tenure for a lot of sales leaders. So if yep. you, if you do the work of building a personal brand that carries with you exit, termination, whatever, how have you seen other leaders, maybe CEOs, COOs, marketing leaders, how have you seen them roll their audience into leverage in negotiating compensation, including stock options or bonuses or the fact that I'm going to be able to bring in talent and we're going to save tens to hundreds of thousand dollars in recruiting fees. How have you seen them use that as collateral in their next opportunity? Yeah, I think, um, so branding is really a, a strange exercise and here's what I mean. Um, I've created a brand for myself online that is tethered to the success of patient pop. It's also tethered to a lot of other things. Now I talk about a lot of different topics. I, I don't much talk about my SAS days even, even that much anymore. But if I were to go out and ask people to give their perspective on my past and performance, a lot of their perspective would be shaped by the parables and stories that I've told over time. So I control my own narrative. Really, between you and I, Nigel, you don't know if I'm all that good of a sales leader. You never worked with me, right? We've never been peers in, in a company before. You have to just look at what you see out in the universe and use that as a deciding factor. And so to me, knowing that people have limited information to make choices, I am damn sure going to control that narrative. And so I write my own story. And when I write my own story, right, I get to be the, the teller of it. And when you get to be the teller of it, you, you get a lot of leverage, meaning because I've crafted a narrative, which by the way is true, like built a business from $0 to 50 million. Obviously you have to have, something has to go well inside of that. Um, you have a lot of leverage to command a higher price point, negotiate for more equity, get a better salary, more total earnings, more control. You know, I've built that, that narrative. And so I highly recommend that sales leaders go out and start controlling the narrative. Much like why small businesses have websites, they get to control the narrative. They get to tell you about their business, how great it is, you know, versus relying on third-party information like Google reviews and things like that. That's how I think about myself. Think about myself as a walking one-person business. So I'm going to control that narrative. So let's flip it a little bit, flip the script. Sure. What do you say to... To me, I'm a CEO. I'm listening to this. You, you've got experience leading another individual that reports to you that has a very meaningful LinkedIn following and a very meaningful mm -hmm. voice, does a great job controlling the narrative. How do I lead a sales leader that does that well? Like, because they're, they're, to your point, I mean, there is, like, you can tell the world you're great. You can have tens of thousands of LinkedIn followers, but then there is, and, and there, there can be a lot of value to my business in having you in that role. But then mm -hmm. there's like, you got to do the job. So how do you lead someone that controls the narrative really well that may or may not be doing the things well? You set expectations. It's like, it's like leading someone, um, in, in almost any other role who uh, has outside interests other than their role. And so I'm also a firm believer in the fact that when you work for me, like I have, I have you because 
you know, we pay you a salary and overall total earnings. So between nine and five, like you're an employee of the company. That's when you spend time building the team, your role and responsibility is very clear and cut, cut and dry outside of those hours. Like I don't, I don't have any meaningful say on what people do with their lives. Um, so the first thing that I do is I just set expectations that way. Like, who am I to say, don't do that if I do it? And so I, I usually go and say like, hey, when we're here at work, we're working, right? We're getting stuff done. The way that I, I manage and measure folks is by their performance. And by the way, if someone's performing well and they happen to be on LinkedIn at 930 for a few minutes, like, I don't care. I care about outcomes, right? I don't care about hours. I don't need to squeeze the juice out of everybody. What I need is, is performance. And so, but we set expectations. Hey man, spend all the time you want building your LinkedIn strategy, going out and getting us better account executives, you know, building our, building a better team. As long as the performance is there, we have no problems. And the way that I, I like to let people operate is just autonomously. I generally, if they're good at social media, branding themselves, just like get out of their way. It's like hiring someone for anything else. If they're really good at something, like I don't need control. I don't need to get my hands in what they're doing. I just want them to continue to do it effectively. And so I have this big, I guess, takeaway is, I, I'm not an hours guy. I'm an outcomes guy. So if you can bring the outcomes that I need and it only takes you five hours a day, like so be it. If you can spend the other time helping us recruit better people, helping us build a bigger brand on LinkedIn or Twitter or any other social media platform, I am all for that. I think that's working smart, not, not hard. So you've grown your LinkedIn audience from you know a humble thousands a few years ago to I, I just saw you – crossed a hundred thousand followers mm -hmm. on LinkedIn. And, um, from my outside perspective, it's all been because people came to you, you were a magnet, not a megaphone. Mm -hmm. And, and there's some relevance in the sales world, uh, because you, you I mean, obviously yours is going to be far more, um, more volume than I get, but even, even me, I get 10 to 15 requests a day. And I have to ask myself, is this someone that wants to learn from me or am I about to be in their funnel? And sometimes I get it right, but sometimes I get it wrong. And as soon as I accept it, I get this message that just makes me want to throw my computer. So there, there's got to be some wisdom on how you went from in a world that's full of megaphones, how you became a magnet. Yeah. There's a ton of, ton of different ways. I think mostly it's like, um, I study a lot of character development and copywriting. Um, if you, if you break down a Hollywood movie into parts, they all basically have the same parts and those parts are what becomes a really compelling story. And so I, I frame up my journey in, in the parts that you might build a movie. And then inside of that movie, there are characters and, um, I play the role of myself. I am myself. I'm not a made up character. But I certainly shine the light on, um, you know, different traits that I have. I like to tell stories. I like to be polarizing. Um, you know, I like to make sure that when I write something online that I have a really strong opinion. And when you have a strong opinion, which I do, I have many strong opinions, one, one thing generally happens. People come to your post and they either love it or hate it. And that's, that's the best thing you can hope for. If everyone loves your post, you're saying something really, really vanilla. If everyone hates your post, then you're probably an asshole. 
So I like to be somewhere in the middle. I, I like to do 70, 30, 80, 20. I love when 70 to 80% of, of my audience feels what I'm talking about and another 20 to 30% of my audience thinks it's the worst thing they've ever heard. That's okay. Like I'm, I'm shooting to be the guy who creates the content for the right person at the right time who's the right person in my audience. And so that's how I got started. Um, and then, uh, you know, I just kept studying, kept studying copywriting. Like I write every day. I don't, I'm not on video. I don't record uh, a lot of podcasts like this. I just mostly write. And when you get, when you get better at writing, you know how to hook folks in. When you can hook folks in, you get engagement. When you get engagement, your posts grow, your following grows. So it's really all a system that I've just been studying and, and trying to get better at over, you know, three years. So then one of the things in your system, you know, you do write really good copy. You, but I know just from reading that you're you're really passionate about financial independence. Mm-hmm. And so this may seem a little bit out of left field, but I know it's relevant to a lot of folks listening that there there is um, they're waiting on bated breath for a vesting schedule. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's four years, five years, or there's a cliff. Uh, you, you and I just talked about the tenure being less than two years. What, what I'm getting at is the these exits, these big paydays are very rare. Having two of them in your career or multiple, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Yet despite the payoff, you're making tons and tons of discretionary cash. Why do you think more of these individuals aren't, socking it away and investing in other assets, including investing in their, their next move. What, what's your take on that? A few reasons. I think generally sales folks, and I, by the way, I'm a salesperson, so I, I feel like I can say this. Um, but sales is really egocentric. It's really, um, and traditionally very testosterone driven, right? It's traditionally, if you look across executive leadership roles in sales, traditionally heavily male, right? And I think, I think hopefully the industry is starting to do a better job of moving towards more balanced, um, you know, um, gender ratio in terms of, of leadership. So it's heavily testosterone driven, um, heavily egocentric. It's why when, when salespeople are stigmatized in movies that they're, you know, Alec Baldwin in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? That's the traditional thing. So it's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses. It's a lot of you know, buying an expensive watch, driving, driving the right car, having the right house, looking the, the, the way you look on social media. All of that is, I think, the primary reason that that sales leaders find themselves maybe spending a lot of money and not socking it away in other investment vehicles. I, and by the way, that's painting with a broad brush. I'm sure there are plenty of sales uh, leaders who do a great job of that. I, I think the other um, the other maybe challenge is that we don't think about investing in ourselves all that often. I think that's not a natural inclination to some people like to spend 20 K on a website. Like, I don't know, I can put 20 K in the stock market. I can, you know, put 20 K in an angel investment. There's a million different ways that we're traditionally taught to spend our money. The reason that I am really uh, highly advocate for investing in ourselves and therefore controlling our destiny is, is because I believe that when I put a dollar into myself, it generally comes back both short-term and long-term in a high multiple. And so I invest in myself. I keep my expenses low. I try not to live a lavish lifestyle because to me, the coolest thing in the world is financial independence. Like being able to relax and not have the stresses that I had as a sales leader to me is the ultimate flex. 
And so I spend a lot of my time trying to uh, free up cash, invest in things, invest in myself, build a better, better business around my solopreneurship. Those are all the reasons that I do it. And some of the, the things I shared with you are, are, are maybe some of the reasons I think other folks don't. Yeah, I think true wealth, at least for me in, in this season of life, has been completely redefined from some number in the bank account to discretionary mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. and, Same. And time is bought. And, and so you can, you can buy things or you can buy time. And uh, I, I think that's something that, that you and I probably really align on. So if, if I'm listening to this and, okay, how do I begin? Say I've got $20,000 and I'm not going to go buy the new Rolex Submariner. How do you think about putting that into investing in you? Because I agree. I mean, every dollar that I invest in me or Nigel Green, the company of me, is usually a 10 to 20x return. And I just cannot go get that in the marketplace. So how do I take $20,000 and turn it into $200,000? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I try not to advocate for just like frivolous self-investment without some sort of traction. So I, I'd say the, the first thing that I might spend money on is just education. So when I started to build my own business, first thing that I did is I bought some information. I went out and I found folks who had already done it because I wanted to shortcut my learning curve. So I bought books. I did courses. I did some cohort-based coaching programs. And I went out and I just learned as much as I could. I didn't want to buy a website. I didn't want to build a product. I didn't want to do any of that until I fully understood how to even get started. And then once I learned how to get started, the next thing that I did was I proved out everything that I had learned. So I went and I started to try and generate traction, build an audience, get some attention, get some engagement. Once I had some meaningful engagement and attention, then I started to think about, okay, how do I take the meaningful engagement and attention that I have and turn that into dollars? That question in and of itself helped me direct where I spent my money. So for example, I spent it on um, creating a brand strategy, creating a, a website and some automation strategy to take top of funnel leads, move them through my system, get them onto my calendar, get, get them as paying customers. And so that's how I thought about it. Education first, that's where you spend some money, then spend some time proving your idea and then spend some money taking your idea, all the things that you learned and putting a system together. That's like one, two, three for me. And then as you get more advanced, there are plenty of ways you can you know, spend your money to improve your business. Are there some resources that come to mind that you wouldn't mind sharing books or courses that were really helpful for you to kind of codify some of your beliefs around building an audience? Totally. Um, one of the things that I, I did early on is I just read a simple book, books called When to Jump by Mike Lewis. And it really gets you in the mindset of understanding how to position yourself to leave full-time employment and become a solopreneur or a business owner or a business of one. So that was just a simple, small investment. Um, another thing that I invested in is there's a popular creator on Twitter. His name's Jack Butcher. He happens to live in Nashville. Um, I spent some time getting coached by him early on as I was building and thinking about my business. That was a, a very well-spent investment. Um, other things that I do is I'm, I joined a course by, it, it hasn't come out yet, so this is another investment that I'm making right now, um, by Harry Dry, who runs marketingexamples.com. I think he knows everything about copywriting, landing page conversion. So right now I'm investing in myself just to learn more about how to optimize my website, write better copy, get more leads. Those are all things that are, are really important to me. And I would say... Um, 
Maybe, maybe lastly, I, I bought a few courses online um, that were really helpful just in terms of leveraging social media. So I bought How to Grow a Twitter Following by Daniel Vasallo, which I really enjoyed. It was actually very relevant to LinkedIn as well. And then I bought um, uh, the copywriting, I think it's called The Master's Guide to Copywriting by Dave Gerhardt. I think I got that name wrong, but Dave's a you know real well-known marketer, worked at Drift. Now he's the CMO at Privy. He's a marketer, you know, he's one of the best marketers around right now. So I bought his copywriting course. I'm always buying courses because like if I can spend a hundred or 300 bucks and learn one thing that brings me a thousand dollar customer, so worth it for me. And so, um, those are just some things that I can think of off the top of my head. So I want to talk about, I want to get back and, and just talk sales leadership for a while. Sure. Uh, you, your team at, at patient pop, when you decided to, to jump ship, how big had it gotten? What, what were some of the challenges that were were new and nuanced because of the size and, and complexity of the team? Yeah, I haven't. I have a strange sort of journey, which went into your question, but every day was new because I was a first time executive, and so every rev, every dollar that we made was a dollar milestone that I had never seen before. We had a million in recurring revenue. I had never been there, let alone 50 million. Um, but the, the things that, that maybe drove me to step down at Patient Pop are probably pretty common things that sales leaders see as they move outside of their comfort zone. Um, one was I just burned out. And that's a huge driver of how I think about financial independence and solopreneurship and things like that. People think burnout is tied to overwork. I don't believe it is. I can work all day long. Um, I think burnout is tied to loss of control. And that's what I was experiencing inside of Patient Pop because my team was 150 people deep. You know, we had just crossed 50 million. I had come from zero, you know, never having seen any of this before. And I didn't know how to make the machine get bigger without breaking a lot of processes and systems. And as more happened, it compounded, much like interest. Minute one thing broke, two things broke, then four, then eight, then 16. And it was this loss of control that really drove me to burn out. And so I approached very proactively my co-CEOs, Travis and Luke, and said, I don't think I can do this much longer. You know, I'd come from a decade straight of high growth startups, and I was just burning, burning the candle at both ends. And so I advocated that I stay through July. I ended up staying through August of 2019, um, came back when COVID hit as the interim CRO to build a product uh, called telehealth, but they are now in the hands of David McNeil, who I think scaled HubSpot from hundred to 500 million. So the right guy for the job. Um, and so they're, they're in great hands and, uh, and I wish him the best. So that's interesting. You, it sounds like if I'm hearing you right, like loss of control, wasn't that uh, anybody was taking control away from you. It was just that no. the problems were becoming more complex and they either you weren't equipped or not interested or a combination of both of solving them. And so you needed someone who was interested in solving those kinds of problems. Totally. And you're, you're right. Like I'm not, um, I don't have enough of an ego to say, Oh, I knew what I was doing and I just got disinterested. Like there were definitely parts of, of that journey where I just, I couldn't figure it out. Like I couldn't figure out the solution. Uh, I just didn't have the skills. I, I, I wasn't deep enough in my career. I hadn't been there before. There were a million different reasons why I couldn't figure it out. At the same time, I was getting tired. 
And um, when you get tired, you start to lose interest. And so the intersection of those three things made it the right time for me to leave. Um, I do lots of things really badly. One thing that I like to think that I'm good at is I don't have to be the guy. Like, I don't like David McNeil is the right guy for that company at this time. And that makes me happy. I feel like I had a great run. And when, when it was time to put my white flag up, I, I waved it uh, very aggressively. <laughs> yeah. So th- there are a couple of things that I want to talk about that, that kind of come up from what you just shared. And I appreciate you, you being vulnerable and sharing that. The, the first sure. is that sometimes CEOs and management teams make the mistake of hiring a Nigel or hiring a Justin that just came off a very successful run and, and two problems come up. The first being that that experience that you had going from zero to 50 may not map exactly appropriately to what this management team needs from you now. So like the Justin you were from zero to 1 million was a different Justin from one to 10 and then from 10 to 25 which Justin are they getting? Because they, they may be needing the Justin from a, a different stage that you no longer are. You've outgrown that. You're not willing to do that. Your skill set has moved. And then, so that's one thing. That's one challenge. Couple that with, from my own experience, after a big exit, I always suck at the very next opportunity. And I think a lot of that is my ego. A lot of, the, and I'm not like you, I'm not a very <clears throat> egoic person, but we all have ego and, and it manifests in relying too much on the, on the processes and the plays from that previous exit in the next opportunity. Any, anything resonate with you on that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I think there's two things. The first one is that when I left patient pop and started doing some advising for other SaaS companies, I was really, really specific about where I knew I could give tremendous value. So for example, you'll see people leave a company and say, I'm now a SaaS advisor. I help SaaS companies. What kind? Enterprise, transactional, product led growth, inbound, outbound partnership companies, like what kind of companies do you leave? And so um, I was really specific about how my experience translates. And my experience translates in the following. I help early stage. And what I generally mean by that is less than 10 million recurring revenue, transactional SaaS companies. What I mean by that is generally less than 30K average contract values in two week sales cycles, grow their business, especially in the healthcare technology vertical. So I find healthcare technology companies under 10 million recurring revenue who are selling transactional SaaS products generally into private practice physician spaces. That is a pretty small niche. There's plenty of companies, but I niche down to my very favorite thing to do and the thing that I believe I'm best at. So by, by doing that, I never take on a challenge that I'm not equipped for. At least it's the best opportunity to work with challenges that I think I am the most equipped for, right? And so all the companies that I work with now, I'm super passionate about, I'm super interested in about, and, um, and, I'm, and I'm really helpful in their growth. And so um, that's one way that I think about it. I think the other thing that's really important is when you come off of an exit or you come off of a burnout, just taking time off. Like 
don't know, if you just jump right back into the swing of things, that burnout comes right back and, and that exhaustion comes right back. And so for me, it was taking a little bit of time off. I wish I had taken off more and, and being very specific with the customer base that I serve. Yeah. A, a big lesson for me is w- when I left the company, we, we sold it for $350 million and I stayed on for six months and then realized I was just not going to make it uh, at a Fortune 300 healthcare company. But the day I was relieved, the next day I started a CEO story brand. Didn't take any time off. And mm. uh, looking back on it, um, it, it was not the best not the best move for any party involved that you, you need some time to decompress and, and think about, I think really to synthesize the learnings because, you know, I came off a five year run at leading a sales team that you know grew from six reps to, you know, hundred, like, like you're talking about and the revenue you know, just kept compounding. I wish I would have just taken three months, not do any work, but just write down everything I learned, every mistake, and roll it into what, what I now have. And now I, I coach people they don't have to create like your first 100-day playbook. And, yeah. and I think having a playbook is great, but then coupling that with something as specific that you just talked about, like your ideal – in the same way, we, we all sales leaders come in and say, what's your ideal customer profile? Well, you got to have your ideal opportunity profile, and it's got to be as specific as the way you just articulated it so that – when you walk into an interview and you lay down that 100-day plan, everybody in the management team that's interviewing you is nodding, saying, this is the person. That's right. Yeah, 100%. And I think, um, I think, sure, like getting, getting, taking on a new challenge can be fun. Um, but for me, like helping someone's business grow when they don't know what to do and I feel like I have a lot of the answers is – is more comfortable, at least in this stage of my life. And, and maybe five years or 10 years from now, I'll feel very differently. But that's how I feel right now. So um, as we get ready to land the plane, any any parting thoughts or words or wisdoms for the, the sales leaders that are listening to this and, and curious about navigating, uh, you know, building a brand, thinking about how they parlay a brand into the next move, and uh, really just kind of a summation of the things that we talked about today? Yeah. I mean, I like to think in systems and like steps. And so this is how I think about it. If you're a sales leader, you probably get paid pretty well. So you've got some good active cash. Um, Everyone who is in a a startup or technology or venture backed business is generally depending on equity. They're depending on a a liquidity event, an exit event of some, some kind. I have found those to be, you know, Unlikely. I've gotten lucky a few times, but they are generally unlikely if you survey my friends who all work in technology. And what I fear for those folks is that they live the lifestyle while assuming the liquidity event and then the liquidity event doesn't happen. And so what I might recommend is creating your own liquidity event. And so that's how I think about my life and my business now is I build assets that are evergreen. You know, I build digital courses. I've got, I'm working on my third digital course right now. And when I want to raise or I want a liquidity event, I write a post and make, I pay myself in one day, in an hour. And having that kind of leverage takes some time. It's taken me three years, but man, is that more controllable than hoping your equity goes somewhere. 
And I'm not saying don't work for equity because equity is great. I have a lot of equity in some businesses. and I hope it goes really, really well. But in the meantime, find a way to flip a switch and pay yourself on a regular basis. And so take that active cash, build some passive investments like digital courses, things like that. Build a presence for yourself. Give yourself a raise and take that money, put that money to work for more money. And if the liquidity event comes in, in the end, congratulations. You've just set yourself up really well. And that's that's the position I'm in in my life right now. A couple fingers crossed, but if it doesn't happen, I'm, I'm controlling my own income right now. Music from this episode is from my good buddy, Justin Adams. You can listen to Justin's music at Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you, Justin, for the music. And thank you for checking out another episode of The Revenue Harvest.